Hello, good evening and welcome to a very special episode of Straight Talking English. Because, as I put on Twitter, Facebook, Insta and every other form of social media, I have been asking for questions from members of the general public to do an AMA, Celebrity Reddit Style. Many of the questions that came in were about Romeo and Juliet. So I'm going to be combining these into a very special, very random questions episode today. In the position of question asker is very special guest, my boyfriend, Matthew. Hi. And he is going to be asking us some very deep and difficult questions, which I have had to research. So, Matthew, what is your first question? Okay, my first question from Tim is, how did Shakespeare make the geography of Verona accurate when he'd never been there? It's a very good question, actually, um, coming from Tim. There's, a, well, there's a lot of good reasons, actually. First up, he lived in Bishopsgate. He lived round the corner from the building where Duck and Waffle and Suji Samba are. Okay. Next to Liverpool Street Station. Yeah. Which is apparently a massive area in Elizabethan times for Central European immigrants. So while he was out and about in the mornings, he would have met people from Verona. He also had mates who were actual Italians. One of his mates from Tuscany is... And I'm going to apologise because any romance language, I end up sounding like Del Boy. So I'm going to give this a shot. And Matthew, you are Italian. So let's see if you can say it as well. His mate... Oh, we've got to stop recording So I think someone's trying to break into my house. Do you want to check that out, love? I'm going to keep this recording running because this might be good for CSI. Well, we can hear someone with the key. Matthew's laughing. It's either... Supermarket workers are our neighbours. Update listeners, we are not being robbed as far as I can tell. So, Shakespeare's mate was called Giovanni Florio. Florio? Yes. uh, From Tuscany. He was a translator. He was also mates with a family of musicians called the Bassanos, who he worked with professionally. In his free time, where he wasn't writing plays or... Um, Okay, I have to tell you this, by the way, this is a really inappropriate story that I'm going to share. Shakespeare was in a play that was about Julius Caesar before he became a famous playwright. And the actor who played Julius Caesar was apparently really good looking. And this girl came to the stage door and said, oh, ask Julius Caesar to come see me later. So Shakespeare takes the initiative, goes round to her house... And says, apparently, I'm not Julius Caesar, but I am William the Conqueror. (laughs) That's terrible. Apparently she told his friends this, and it's gone down in the annals of history as being Shakespeare's chat-up line. I am officially going to introduce myself as Catherine the Great next time I come home. Fair enough. You've got that to look forward to. Fantastic. So while he wasn't using that chat-up line on people... He may well have been reading travel literature. So he was fluent in Italian-ish because he did so much um, Latin at school. He was basically an undergrad level of Latin. One book he definitely wrote was by Giambattista, G-I-A-M-B-A-T-I-S-T-A, Giraldi from Ferrara. 
and this was a book that was found in his possession so he definitely read italian travel literature he also had a map of verona it was called the civitas orbis terrarum not terrarium as i first wrote that down published between 1572 and 1617 in like a subscription service it has beautiful bird's eye maps of a whole set of european cities including verona also so you're not a big shakespeare guy are you not especially do you know how many of his ideas he nicked i know yes lots like previous works older stories he nicked pretty much the whole plot of romeo and juliet from this guy called arthur brooks who wrote a an epic poem called The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet. Big difference there. Romeus. Mm. In 1562. He basically just nicks the whole thing. So he based it on Brooks, who based it on Verona. But Brooks got his idea from a guy called Luigi da Porto, who wrote, oh, no, this is going to be terrible, Historia Novellamente, Ritrovata di Due Nobelli Amanti. It's better than I could have done it. I know that Due is two, as in, like, Due Bira. Yes. <laughs> this is my limit. That was written in 1535, and it was written by an actual Veronese person from Verona, and included characters called Romeo, and Giulietta. So there you go. He knew Italians, he had a map, he read the book, and he just robbed a load of stuff. He just stole it. Well, I mean, the story's been retold a few times since then, so you could say it's just the story that won't die. A unlike Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And Tybalt. And Mercutio. And Paris. And Romeo's mum. High death count. Very high. It's like an anime. So, shall we move on to the second question? Yes, please tell me the second question. The second question by Laura is, what's the relevance of the potion in Romeo and Juliet? Right. So, first up, if Laura is listening to this, she should know the answer, because Laura is one of my oldest friends in the world, and we were in the same GCSE English class. So, she has no excuse if I've remembered this. (laughs) So, first up. Do you know the story of Romeo and Juliet? Only in the basic sense. So, how much do you know? It's it's about uh, teenage lovers and uh, feuding families. So, do you know where the potion comes into it? No, I don't. Alright, I'm calling it a potion, but it's like herbal medicine, right? Okay. So, Romeo and Juliet, they meet, they get together. Cool. They decide that they love each other. They, he decides the way to tell her he loves her is by sneaking into her garden mm. at night. Climbing into his room and speaking in iambic pentameter for a while, Romeo gets in trouble. He accidentally kills her cousin after his cousin has killed his best friend. And he is exiled to Mantua, which, to be honest, being exiled to Tuscany for the rest of my life doesn't actually sound that bad. But he's sad. Uh, Julia is pressured into marrying someone else by her parents. So... Her idea, out of sheer desperation, is she goes to see Friar Lawrence, the holy man, Romeo's mentor, and the guy who secretly married uh, Romeo and Juliet, who I've been referring to as the world's worst priest. The guy has no morals, like, at all. Um, I feel like there's a Catholic church joke there that writes itself, but I will not lower myself to that level. Um, And Friar Lawrence hatches his plan. 
where she takes a potion that puts her into a really deep sleep and her family will think she's dead, put her in the family crypt, he'll write a letter to Romeo, Romeo will sneak back and pick her up when she wakes up from this deep sleep, and then they'll get to be together. Okay. Can you see any holes in that plan? Several. I, I think it's foolproof. Mm. I think there's no problem there at all, Ben. Aside from the fact that it very much didn't work. That was because when he sent the letter, the postman, his friend Friar John, got stuck in a town quarantined for the plague. Conveniently enough. Conveniently. Is that the reason why when we order things online, they're late? Because the postman was stuck in a plague house? Well, obviously. I, yes. I, okay, I'm going to go with yes on that one. So back to Laura's question. Um, one of the things that Shakespeare loved doing was using medieval spiritual play tropes. So, before Shakespeare, before early modern drama, you had, like, medieval drama. And you had what was called mystery plays, where you'd get a character that would be called, like, kindness or old age. And, like, each character represents something symbolically. One of the things that happened a lot was death and resurrection. Kind of, because a lot of these mystery plays are like sponsored by the church, so they'd be put on around Easter time. Yeah, you get the meaning, you've just seen it, like, performed, resurrection, it's all good. And one of the things that this is going to play on is Juliet will quote-unquote die and then be resurrected. The potion, of course, is very fashionable. Herbals and herbal medicines are really, really common. We're talking before the age where people have any kind of, like, what we would call today medical knowledge. It's very much in the, um, you've got a paper cut, amputate it kind of thing. Friar Lawrence is very, very educated in terms of his herbals. Uh, the guy that allegedly he was based on believed the way to work out which plant would cure you is the shape of it. So if it looks like a finger... It cures your finger. And apparently, all kids look like a man's reproductive area. So if a gentleman has any problems in that area, he should eat a load of orchids. As a sort of cure-all for genitalia problems. Yes. Of any kind. Yes. Fair enough. Eat orchids. Eat orchids and you'll get better. The potion is also symbolic of Juliet's desperation. In the first scene she comes in, she says, like, two words. She has, I think she's got three lines in the whole scene. But as the play progresses, she becomes more and more eloquent. And that kind of represents her maturing, going from, like, a little mousy girl to being a fully-fledged adult woman. This, when she asks for the potion, it comes just after this huge speech listing all the things she would rather do than get remarried like be chained to a bear, jump off the top of a castle, hang out in a pit full of snakes, use a shroud as a quilt with the skeleton next to you. And this is like the high, the peak of her eloquence so far. We can see she's fully developed. This is also the bit of the play where it really, really deviates from being a rom-com. So at the start of the play, it's quite funny. There's a lot of D jokes and like silly bits 
if this was still a rom-com, someone getting forced to marry someone else, you'd expect it to be like, oh no, and then it's like mistaken identity and boys dressing as girls or whatever. But instead, tone shift. And she's now totally suicidal and it's completely flipping what we'd think the genre would be. It also is symbolic. Everything is symbolic. Has to be. I'm an English teacher, everything's symbolic. If Friar Lawrence represents stability and established society because he's an old religious dude, then the potion shows how shaken he is by Juliet's individualism. So this is weird, but according to what I read, around the time this was written, people started to think of themselves as individuals for the first time. So you would say, I am me, I am Catherine, I like podcasting, I like wearing silver rings, rather than saying, I'm Catherine, I am my mother's daughter, I am my sister's sister. You see yourself as distinct. And not just relative to the people around you. Yeah, and Friar Lawrence does not want to give her the potion because she's daughter of the most powerful family in the city and there is no way that can actually go well. So we have the old established order shaken up by a young lady learning she's an individual. Though fun fact, one of the reasons um, this book that I read said people began to develop individualism is because mirrors became cheap. So you can sit there and look at your own face and, like, scrutinise it for the first time. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, we all spend hours scrutinising ourselves in the mirror, so that's all good. Next question, please. I'm on a roll. Right, third question. Why does Juliet say, wherefore art thou Romeo, and not, wherefore art thou Montague? Right. And who asked me that question? And that is a question by Paul. This is an absolute stumper of a question to be honest Paul uh, I was this is a curveball I had so I'm going to refer to someone who is much smarter than I am this guy called Joshua Engel is a director and an actor of a Shakespearean theatre company uh, called the Rude Mechanicals and he's, his theory is that Montague is not his surname Montague is Romeo's family name so for example Anne Boleyn second wife of Henry VIII is part of the Howard family so Montague is the name of the whole group of this ruling clan and may not necessarily be his individual surname the other theory this guy Joshua Engel has is that Romeo might be the name of all firstborn males so it's like a generation name it's a short form for the capulets so um i know within some chinese families all males of a generation are given the same part of their name it signifies like where you are in the family tree so your name includes your part in the hierarchy and such yeah absolutely or it means there's like a shift in the names you choose so the example that joshua engel gave was julius caesar aka julio cesare if we ever go to rome 
the statues and the nifty gifties they have of him are amazing because he looks like a middle-aged civil servant which is what he is he also looks a little bit like my dad but with uh, a laurel wreath on and i've been dying to get one for my dad so he can see himself immortalized so julius caesar his dad was called gaius julius caesar so was our hero when dad dies our hero becomes called Julius Caesar. He was called Gaius as a kid, but then he takes on his dad's full name. He gets to call himself Caesar. Okay, it's a, it means emperor, yeah, I know. But he got to take on the last part of his name when he became the most powerful person in his family. So, Romeo might not be his actual name. It might be kind of a title saying firstborn son of the Capulet, of the Montagues. So it gives this implication that why do you have to be the oldest son of the Montagues? Because dot dot dot, if you were the second son and less important, we might be able to get together. Romeo also distances him from the feud. She's all about deny thy father, refuse thy name, arose by any other name will smell as sweet. She's all about this gentleman as a person not as part of this feud so why would you talk about him in terms of the feud there's also a logistical reason so do you know what iambic pentameter is it's a structure of of uh, really not <laughs> you may want to edit this bit out no i'm keeping it all it's live damn it iambic pentameter it's a sentence of 10 syllables where every other one is stressed Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Fair enough. And it's supposed to represent the beating of the human heart. It's also supposed to be the most beautiful way of talking. Generally, Romeo and Juliet use it as they're talking to each other. So it symbolises their perfect love connection. So, if instead of saying I love you, I should walk up to you and go... Hello, Matthew, where is my dinner? And then you're like, oh, she loves me, even though she's demanding food. Yes. It's working. It's working. Do you feel the love and the need to give me food? I'm feeling, I'm feeling something. <laughs> I wish this was a video podcast. You could see my terrified boyfriend. <laughs> it's harsh. But if you're doing iambic pentameter... You've got to have the right number of syllables, or it jars. If you've got the wrong amount of syllables, it comes out sounding creepy. And that's what Shakespeare does with the witches in Macbeth. A couple of syllables change, and it sounds weird. Romeo has three syllables. A Montague has four. So, Romeo fits the form. It means it's part of a sonnet, which shows their instant connection. Fits with Juliet's eloquence. Basically, it works with what he's doing, and I hope that has answered your question, Paul. Hopefully. I don't think you're going to get a better answer on that one. No, I'm quite impressed by that. All right, on to the next question. Question number four from Henry. How does Shakespeare... Yes, that is the correct one. Sorry, I thought I'd... Uh... <laughs> How does Shakespeare make the lover's deaths seem inevitable? Well, that is a very good question from Henry, actually. 
I'm glad he asked it. He does it with the turn from comic to tragic. I mentioned this with the genre shift, right? Yes. But the the shift happens when there is this fight. Tybalt, who is Juliet's cousin, starts on Romeo. Romeo refuses to fight him back because he's related to Tybalt now. Not a problem I would have with your cousin. I reckon I could take him in a fight. You probably won't. don't want to start with my cousins. They're quite tall. But anyway, he decides not to fight him. Mercutio, his best friend, jumps in. Mercutio up till now has been this joker. But he dies. He gets stabbed. And it's very, very sad. And then Romeo kills Tybalt. That stops being funny. <laughs> Everything is like, oh, it's funny. Oh, the funny guy's having a fight. No, he's stabbed to death and he's lying bleeding in the street. And now it's serious. Everything's becoming real. Everything at that point is arguably inevitable because Romeo is exiled, which means Juliet will follow extreme measures, blah, 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 blah. It's a Rolling Stone gathering moss. He also sets everything up in a binary. Everything's got an opposite. Man, woman, Montague, Capulet, light, dark. Everything's set up and you can't, have the two binaries just running in parallel they've even got to get closer to each other and cause a conflict no or move away and become separate they could combine so if Romeo and Juliet had a child then that would solve everything the other way is destiny popularly we think this is a play about luck and bad luck but in the start in the prologue so in the first bit of the play, they do spoilers on stage and tell you the whole story in the sonnet. Because they can. Yes. That's what Elizabethan's like. And they are called star-crossed lovers. So it's destiny. It's always going to happen. Julia, uh, Shakespeare uses the imagery of darkness. Love is always associated with darkness. In a really beautiful bit, Juliet sits by her window saying... Hurry up evening so Romeo can come and, I assume, do kissing. But the form she does it in is in a funeral poem. Everything is about death, darkness. When it comes to their love, death, darkness, funeral, it's foreshadowing them dying together in a crypt. The other thing is, Friar Lawrence makes it very clear that love is linked to gunpowder. What does gunpowder do? It explodes. So as soon as these references are made, we know it's inevitable. We know it's going to explode. Ta-da! Good question, Henry. And final question by Alfie. Why was Shakespeare allowed to make Mercutio so rude? Well, good question. For a start, the church's stance... Um, we are just about Anglicans at this point. Um, Henry VIII had split from the Church of Rome, so he was able to divorce Catherine of Aragon. So we have the Church of England. The stance is that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Bad. But the definition of marriage was different. A serious promise in front of people counted 
babies born outside wedlock were acknowledged and supported. So, by making loads of D-jokes and talking about all kinds of naughty things, he's not actually being that scandalous. People are still people. So, uh, some of Michiko's jokes are really silly. Uh, Romeo says, what time is it? And he's like, the sun is a... It was it the dial of the clock is upon the prick of noon and then like he holds out the sword to look like he has an erection and that's like the level of dirty joke we're talking about people were really really open about sex despite this official line they have a really weird sense of humor and not all of it carries but in the course of my research and i've been giggling about this for like two days I managed to find some Tudor erotic poetry. It is really funny. Which I am going to share with you guys. If you Google the choosing of Valentine's, you will find it. And I will read some of the more appropriate bits. Just, just to set the context, how long is this poem? Uh, well, on the PDF on my phone, uh, that's pa- eight pages. Eight pages. And I shall read you an extract of page three. We will remove the camp incontinent for shelter only, sweetheart. Sweetheart came I hither and to avoid the trouble of stormy weather. But now the coast is clear, we will be gone, since by thyself, true lover, have I none. With that, she sprung full lightly on my lips, and fast about the neck, me coils and clips. She wanton faints, falls upon the bed, and often tosseth to and fro her head she shuts her eyes and waggles with her tongue oh who am i to abstain so long and it is literally eight pages of him describing this woman including the phrase a lofty buttock bared with azure veins uh there you go basically these things are pretty standard why include all these dirty jokes from Mercutio. It gives the audience what they want. It's why the reason the play opens with violence. You wanna have something for everyone. Start off with a sword fight, people stabbing each other. Start off with a funny bit. Otherwise, it's gonna be far too serious. Have the first half with this guy jumping around saying rude things because there's a big difference in the price of tickets. The best seats are expensive. Cheap ones, you've got apprentices, so teenage boys with money in their pocket. That's why. Rude jokes and teenage boys. Brings the money in. Oh yeah. It sets up the comic first half of the play. So the second bit is more sad. Well, it's, it's disarming. If you go into a comedy and then it turns tragic partway through, it's going to increase the impact of that. You got it. It also presents... The love that Romeo has for his first girlfriend, Rosaline, is foolish. So when we first meet Romeo, he's in love with this girl called Rosaline, who has said, I don't want today, I never want today, I want to be single. And Romeo's like, but if I bought her presents, she'd love me. And by having the rude bits in conjunction with his previous love, we realise how stupid it was. It makes the fact Mercutio dies even more tragic. So the whole events of the play take place over five days. The morning before, so he dies in the afternoon, and in the morning he was making that prick of noon joke. 
You know, it, it's sad. It's sad. He dies out of nowhere. Mercutio is the spirit of satire. Okay. So satire as we know it now, like, you know, family guy, have I got news for you? Yeah. M- mock the week. Yes. These more or less started during Elizabethan times. And again, the humour doesn't really carry. This guy called Thomas Nash wrote a book that was banned called The Wonderful Year about the year the plague came and killed everyone. Okay, so, you know, a little bit of uh, a bit of black humour there, I suppose. Yeah, it sounds... It just sounds weird. Whatever. Uh, one that might be a little bit more reasonable is... Um, so Queen Elizabeth I never married. And she had lots of princes trying to get with her. And there were cartoons and images that showed her as having, like, a bird on a string. But the bird was labelled as the prince who was after her. Like, okay. stringing people along, right? Sure. But why birds? Um, because they can fly away. Because you can eat them. Okay, yeah. Maybe it's like a falconry image. I'm sure there's a reason. But we can argue Mercutio is there to satirise the courtly love aspects of the play. So Romeo's taking it seriously at the start. I love Rosaline, she is everything. And Mercutio is there to laugh at that, to show this isn't a traditional love play. And it shows as soon as he dies, things will get serious. There's no more joking around. All of a sudden, the love is real and serious. So, of course, he's rude. He's laughing at stupid Romeo mooning over Rosaline, who doesn't even want to date anyway. And, of course, it's terrible when you kill off the comic relief. It is. Though, um, some interpretations think that Mercutio actually liked Romeo, like like boyfriend liked. Elizabethan male friendships were a lot more uh, expressive than now, so there would be no problem with you walking up to one of your best friends and saying, I love you, and giving them a little kiss. So it could just be a very, like, an Elizabethan male friendship that doesn't carry, like, across time. Or... It's kind of awkward that the guy that had a crush on Romeo has to die. Thank you ever so much for your questions, Matthew. You're welcome. We have another AMA when I finish researching that question, which is all the ones that are not about Romeo and Juliet, because clearly this is giving people some problems. STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. And what is the very, very exciting project, which I have just finished the first draft of your book there is a book it is currently with my editor he says you'll have it back by the end of the week and what is your book about my book is the full context of Jekyll and Hyde think halfway between horrible histories and a GCSE study guide it's basically just the total context of the whole thing it's explaining every reference all the history of got jokes in there about inappropriate age relationships there's a lot about heroin addiction kind of a bit about what's the likelihood of an old man going to prison it's an emotional journey but if you are listening to this and you are a teacher or you are in year 11 or you just really really like books and so you should books are cool then you should buy it it's gonna be on amazon in august babe nice i hope you are you gonna buy it of course yes 
Thank you very, very, very much. Normal service will resume next week with Queen Victoria and the birth of Christmas. Thank you very, very much for listening. And thank you for uh, sending in questions. Fab, I will speak to you very soon.